0: I want to introduce to you Andrew Batchelder. Um, when I first met Andrew, uh, uh, we were playing in a golf tournament and he was teamed up with uh, my group. And he starts kind of you know, telling me, it was a tee it up for the troops event. And as he's telling me his story, you know, first of all, he's like, yeah, you know, I'm a member out at Las Colinas Country Club. Um, you know, that came up in the, in the conversation. And he uh, caddies at Brook Hollow. And I'm like, he could see me doing the math in my head. And he's like, well, I'm I'm also medically retired from the Marine Corps. Oh, okay. And as he goes on to tell me his story, I got to tell you, it's one of those stories, Andrew, that I was like, I got to go look this up because some things just didn't sound right. I'm like, nobody falls that far out of the sky, lives to tell about it and then looks this damn good. And then, Oh, by the way, is an unbelievable golfer. This is now my new golf coach, by the way. And so I I did, I mean, I I went, and so I'm not really going to give him a formal introduction. You're going to get introduced to him as we go. And you know, it, it like I said, I had, I had to go check all this out. I'm sorry for not believing you, but I'm like, he gets around really well. So Andrew, thanks very much for being here with us. I'm, I'm honored and humbled to uh, be in your presence. Well,
1: thanks for having me. Uh, this is kind of neat to come into this kind of uh, setting and instead of standing in front of a podium. So I kind of look forward to this interview type deal.
0: Well, um, I I enjoy this myself because I'm a very curious person by nature. So there are a lot of questions that I've been holding off asking you that that I think we're gonna uh, definitely get into here. But you're originally from Fort Worth.
1: Yes, sir, born and raised in Fort Worth.
0: And you enlisted in the Marine Corps right after 9-11. So can I make an assumption that 9-11 had an impact on your decision to join?
1: You can make the assumption, but (laughs) I don't think it really had any kind of impact at whatsoever at the time. Uh, I was in high school, graduated in 2000, Um, wasn't doing real good in high school, didn't make the best choices, was in and out of trouble, and uh, just barely finished high school. Uh, Mom kind of told me that, hey, you're not going to sit around in here, just not do anything and live in the house. So I just kind of went around to the recruiters and then, or I didn't, I told her that I went around to the recruiters, that I was trying to do something, but I really wasn't. I was working at a golf course. I think it was uh, uh, Dent. Where is it at? Diamond Oaks. I was over in Diamond Oaks in Kay. Fort Worth, and I told her fib one day that I had gone and talked to uh, the Air Force recruiter, and I actually hadn't, and she's like, okay, well, we'll go down there tomorrow and talk to him and see. Well, I went down there the next day and actually walked into the Marines office, and then before you know it, I was on my way so to, at that point
0: she'd called you out yeah she called and me so, out. so now something's got you got to do something yep
1: so I had to I had to put one foot in front of the other and then uh, ended up walking to the Marines office and uh, then by I can't remember when that was it had to be like November or something like that after I had already graduated so this was 2001 okay and then in April uh, 2002 I had shipped off to boot camp
0: so did that change your your thought process I mean you know all of a sudden um, you know, September 11 happens, things are starting to heat up, there's so much uncertainty. Did you start to kind of second guess and go, maybe I better walk back down to the uh, Air Force or?
1: No, see, I just, I just went, uh, I think I just went into it blind, you know, and I think that I heard that the Marines were the best. And as I told my mom that I, you know, find out that my great grandfather was a Marine, my grandfather was a Marine, my uncle is still a Colonel in the Marines. So, you know, you find out that Marines run deeper than you actually really knew. And, you know, I wasn't there. very much patriotic kind of guy uh, as a high school, and much high school kids that really aren't. They don't know a whole lot about patriotism and, you know, what actually happened on September 11th, because I really had no clue. I just saw two planes crash into the building.
0: I think that's an interesting point, though, really for all of us, because, you know, we a lot of people look at those who served and say, golly, they were extremely patriotic and... And you know, that's what drew him in. It's not, I mean, you know, the story that Andrew just told is very similar to so many people that I know to include myself, I ended up in the Marine Corps because I was wayward. And you know, it's not until you get in and learn until we are taught the importance of preserving a way of life that we all, you know, often take for granted. It's not until, you know, it's, it's ingrained in your head. Some people call it brainwashing, it's really not. Um, Although we are really good propagandists in the Marine Corps, I will say that. Um, But, you know, your story is very similar in that regard. So then you you end up in the combat engineers. Correct. How did you, was that, did it choose you or did you choose it?
1: I chose combat engineer. Uh, They said, uh, if, so my father and uncle they all used to build houses in california like custom homes and so i used to love building stuff and they said if you want to build things combat engineers the way to go if you want to blow stuff up combat engineer is the way to go so i was like okay then we'll do that you know where you can either build stuff or you can in, get into the into the combat sections of it so stuck with combat engineer
0: so you like to blow things up i did okay yes. all right yes and so <laughs> from from there initially i mean When you were going through your training, did you know already that you guys were going to be headed? Were were things heated up to the point where you're like, okay, I'm actually going to put this stuff to use? Because when I did all my training, it was all, you know, it could happen, it might happen, but there was no real threat that was about to happen. You knew there was a threat out
1: there. I think it really kicked in because we got, first day I checked in in October 2002 to the fleet. So, you know, it was April to October that I was going through boot camp, MCT, and then MOS school. Mm-hmm. So October, when we got to the fleet, it kind of kicked in, you know, hey, we're going to be going to Afgh- or to Iraq in next year sometime. When? We didn't know. Um, I think I ended up getting married uh, December 31st, 2002, just before we deployed. Really? Yes, sir. Okay, yeah. wow. So just before we deployed, I had ran off, you know, and they, as they say in the Marine Corps, if, the Marine Corps wanted you to have a wife, they would have issued you one and all this other stuff. So, But you know, I ran off and, 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 and got married and right before we deployed, and I had known her for, I met her in July. So you do the math. You just knew. <laughs> Eight, like six months, five months, I knew her. And then we were married and still married to today, so. That's
0: awesome. Yeah. I love that. So you get into uh, Iraq, you're part of the initial invasion and um what's interesting and i don't know if my timing is exactly correct here so you can correct me if i'm wrong but he in the combat uh engineer support element they're kind of farmed out and attached to uh infantry units which is what i did in the marine corps and he was attached specifically to the second battalion first marines which is the exact unit that i was a part of uh when when i was in the fleet um and subsequently just on on a sad note the most recent um, departure out of Afghanistan that made the news, that's where all those Marines were from. So Correct. so when you, when you get into, um, let's just skip right to the Battle of Fallujah.
1: So that's, the Battle of Fallujah was before the invasion of 2003. Right. Correct. Yes. So I was, in 2003, I was attached to 1-5. We were the combat engineer battalion that was um, in charge of reaching the iraqi kuwaiti border and filling in the berms and ditches to allow the first marine division or rct5 to to move up towards baghdad uh but then we were after returning in 2003 we returned back to iraq uh february of 2004 for the initial invasion that's when we were attached to second battalion first marines gotcha and we were uh february in fallujah 2004.
0: right so Fallujah has been, for those of you who are not familiar with the Battle of Fallujah, a lot of of Marine Corps folklore has already come out of that. Um, One person described it as walking directly into hell with your eyes wide open. What was your experience during the Battle of Fallujah?
1: So the Battle of Fallujah was interesting. I mean, I was more of, I did some, um, a lot of engineer work when we when we first invaded the the city you know we started at the north west corner i believe mm-hmm. northeast corner of the city and started from house to house to house to house and just as our sections we cleared the houses um then when we were told to pull out of Fallujah we left some elements inside of Fallujah and that's when i was able to come out and then become the support element to bring in stuff here and there uh for a few weeks um but The experience in Fallujah was, I think, was completely different than uh, the first Iraq. You know, we didn't really, we didn't do building to building. Um, We weren't, we were ready for building to building because we did mount training. We did a lot of mount training before Fallujah. Um, We did a lot of small unit cohesions because we knew we'd be in teams of four, teams of five, you know, just breaching, so... um,
0: And and to kind of set that context, you know, he used the, uh, the acronym MOUT, M-O-U-T. Um, <clears throat> if you think we got a lot of acronyms in uh, the mortgage business, let me tell you. It, you know, it's tenfold in, in the military. But, you know, if you look out behind me, what you see is a lot, you know, just easy landscape. Traditional wars, uh, conventional warfare has been fought on terrain like this, where, you know, you, you can see the enemy far enough out um, if you have the right um, uh, elements in place mount meaning military operation in urban terrain like he said clearing houses it's a whole different world i mean it's four-dimensional warfare you don't know if they're underneath you above you around the door they can go through the door through the wall it's it's scary and so you know that's what he's, he's talking about there so did you did you have to be in a position where you were going through that yourself or were you just setting the breach for uh, well,
1: I never, I didn't do a whole lot of breaching. We did some door breaching, um, and then we did door kicking, really. Um, we were just clearing houses. Um, we didn't catch a whole lot of resistance from the first first two or three days, I think. There was more, they were deeper into the city. Um, and then as we got deeper into the city, we kind of got pulled back. You know, we were only into Fallujah for two weeks into the actual battle, Two or three weeks, I think, that we actually then we got pulled back, and then we became a became a support element to you know one battalion was here, one battalion was there was four or five battalions that had the city surrounded until you know ultimately was Vigilant Resolver um, in November 2004 when they actually took Fallujah.
0: Does anything in particular stick out to you during those two weeks?
1: Yeah, uh, Corporal Tyler Fay was killed that night, April fourth, two thousand four. Uh, we had worked for three weeks. Uh, our main p- priority was to go build a bunch of bunkers uh, for the Iraqi police, and we were going to go set them in certain places around the city uh, for them to provide security, you know, checkpoints for the city and you know sifting through the bad guys and stuff like that. As we pulled under the bridge, uh, we became under uh, heavy, heavy, heavy combat fire, uh, mortars, we took heavy machine gun fire and a lot of uh, RPGs, um, and then we had 2-1 we we above us on the railroad tracks, you know, providing cover, and then we just got the word that Copalfay was hit, and then, um, you know, later he didn't, he didn't make it that day.
0: And what was your relationship to Corporal Fay?
1: Uh, we were in the same platoon together. I didn't, uh, I didn't really get to know Corporal Fay very much. Uh, his, he was a, um, he was a fill-in. He was in the battalion, he was, it came from another squad. Okay. Or another platoon mm-hmm. into Bravo Company. And uh, he was a little saltier than I was, so I had just, had and quite. That means seasoned. He <laughs> was, was a little more senior than I was. Um, I will tell you an amazing story about Fay, and I've had a few amazing stories in my life, um, but just this last June, I was in uh, Eden Prairie, Oklahoma, or, uh, Minnesota, and I was doing a Tee It Up for the Troops event, and they had a Gold Star family there, and the Gold Star family sitting there was Fay's father, and I had no idea that they were going to be there. And so when they went to go introduce me to talk to him or to talk to the group, I could do nothing but talk to Corporal Fay's dad. You know, I spent that mm. five, 10 minutes just talking to him because I was unfortunately one of the you know one of the Marines that did inventory his you know his gear and to send it back to his family. So that was the last memory that I have of Corporal Fay.
0: Kind of a god thing, if you will. Yeah, um.
1: just you know, it's only fifteen years later. You know what I mean because it happened in 2004. And so in 2021, 16 years later, then it.
0: So as you're inventorying his gear, what's going through your mind, knowing that you're collecting all of these things to send back to his now Gold Star family? Right. What's going through your mind?
1: You know, it was hard for, it's hard to really think about it, uh, what was going through at the time. I think at the time that was the first one that I had dealt with. Um, we had lost individuals in o i f one, but i just i hadn't dealt with it that close um so and not knowing Faye as much as i as, as some of the other individuals, it just uh you know it was just it was just a somber moment, really you know just a somber
0: moment oh i I can see where it'd be a little scary too yeah i mean for it's just sure. it's it's reality. Hitting you right in the face.
1: Yeah, for sure. Because you never really know if it would have been you or somebody else.
0: So you get through Fallujah, um, and again, it was a. As far as all accounts go, it was a. It was tough. It was a very, very tough Marine Corps battle. Um, A lot of uh, a lot of wonderful stories came out of it as well. um, About you know guys just protecting the individual to their left and right, but you then transition into the air wing. Correct. Which, by the way, is very traitorous, <laughs> going from the ground <laughs> element to the air wing, but I'm, I'm going to let this pass. <laughs> um, and so you end up uh, as a crew chief on a Huey, is that right? Correct. And so for those of you who've, um, uh, if you've ever watched a movie like Platoon, anything Vietnam era, those were Hueys, you know, where, um, you know, they would, uh, Kind of a big rounded nose, the side doors open, and, you know, and that's where... You know, that the famous wop-wop. Yes, I mean, just a very distinct sound. So you end up in a Huey, which, like I said, this was not that long ago, and these were birds that we were using in Vietnam. So, by the way, in the Marine Corps, we get the very last of all the budgets. Um, so tell, tell me about your experience as a, as a crew chief.
1: So I thought i liked like to blow stuff up. Man, I like to fly in helicopters a lot more because, one, I don't have to carry the 70 pounds that you do, right? Fair. <laughs> and then, two, I don't have to use wheels. I can just get up and go. and It's a lot faster. So, um, and I think that seeing the aerial perspective of, of a combat zone is a lot safer. Or you would say, you would think it would be safer from the top. I you was going to say, we're, al- would, we're almost there. We're I don't know if it was there, that much yeah. safer. But but uh, I think it just the, uh, the, agen- uh, the adrenaline rush, you know, 150, 160 miles an hour hanging out of the side yeah. of a helicopter shooting guns and um, banking and burning and turning, it's, uh, it's an adrenaline rush. It really is.
0: Well, and, and I, I know that, uh, you know, I, I give them grief about that, but I was actually in a helo company. Right. Uh, so that, that meant in the infantry, we would use helicopters to transport us from one spot to another. Um, and, and, I, and I will say that the, those pilots and the crew chiefs um, in the air wing, man, they understand the importance of that air cover for the guy on the ground who doesn't have the ability to just lift off and go whenever they need it. Right. And so you guys were, the the, the fateful night, you were on a mission in Afghanistan. Yes, sir. Take it from there. Take
1: it there. So October 26, 2009, I was woken up about uh, midnight, 11.30, to go on a, uh, we did 12 hour shifts as crew chiefs and pilots. We went midnight to midnight, or midnight to noon, noon to midnight. Uh, I was on the midnight to noon, so they woke us up at about uh, 11.30, because we had a mission that was going off at zero one um and they briefed us we were escorting two army chinooks for an insert for a high value individual um and as the huey and the cobra we were supposed to provide close air support over the top as they inserted the uh the two all the guys for the insert uh, so, so these were special operations Special operations okay. fbi guys i found out later there were some fbi guys on there some special operations um uh After takeoff, we lost sight of our lead helicopter. Um, The pilot inside the helicopter, in our cockpit, was able to say we're blind, but unable to say that we're blind on lead um, over the radio, over our intercom. And by the time we had done that, uh, I heard, oh shit, from one of the helicopter, from the pilots, and then heard a a meshing of metal. Um, The lead helicopter had gotten, I think that we got out in front of lead helicopter and then lead when, when lead went to cross over they ended up clipping us uh, at some port of our, of our helicopter and then we ended up crashing to the ground uh, from about 300 feet in the air. Um, when, we lo- when we hit uh, we ended up losing our tail rotor and our tail boom and then became a, just a fuselage um, and then when we hit the ground I think I was thrown out of the helicopter. Um, and then it caught fire, it was burning, all the rounds were burning off and cooking off. And uh, I didn't really know what was going on. I was kind of, all I could hear was fire crackling and uh, one of the pilots was screaming. I was calling for Flurry. I was calling for Jones, and nobody was answering me. Um, and then somebody came up and started moving me. And I started screaming, and I told them, no, 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 don't move me. My biggest fear was being captured alive, um, but I was in so much pain, I think, uh, in my pelvis area that they were trying to get me out of there, um, but they ended up did getting me out of there within six minutes of... And, and who, who is they? Uh, the, so the two helicopters that we were escorting, um, they were actually, they saw the Cobra explode, and then they saw our fire from our helicopter. So mission turned from... Assault to recovery and, you know, life-saving a mission from there.
0: Yeah, I think that's, that's kind of the epitome of uh, um, a mission only survives the first right. round fired, or, yeah. or, you know, the mission statement, if you will. Right. Um, so you woke up, you hear crackling, you know, and that's one of those things a lot of people don't even think about. You know, the, the ammunition, when it catches fire, and that's one of the things that the enemy is always going to go for, um, and that's what took down a lot of ships in, in World War II, was that um, the ships would be, uh, or, or the armor, right. armory would be hit. Yep. And that's what sinks the ship because of you know, all the secondary explosions. So did, was that going through your mind that, I mean, oh, my God. I think I, I was, I was more get worried sh-
1: about getting hit by one. Yeah. Really, honestly, because we had uh, f- a 550 cal rounds and 1,500 762 rounds. Uh, we didn't have any rockets, but we did have, you know, about two thousand rounds of bullets, and
0: in a fifty-caliber round, mind you, by the Geneva Convention is not intended for human beings. I mean, it, it literally can take someone and cut them in half. So, yeah, I can see where that would have been a little right. bit of a fear to you. What I mean, you wake up and you, they're trying to move you. You're screaming because you realize everything's hurting. I mean. Describe all the injuries from 300 feet <clears throat> with uh, the fall.
1: So I broke my right tibia fibula. Uh, I had an open book pelvic fracture. Um, basically, my for males, our pelvis doesn't open up. Females, it does to allow the, you know, the passage of the baby. But mine had opened about five millimeters, which I was bleeding on the inside. So they didn't know if that was probably one of the other ways that I was gonna pass away um was just from in internal bleeding uh I blew out my left acetabulum uh that's where your ball sits inside the socket of your hip I had broke three uh transverse processors on my back, two collapsed lungs, four broken ribs, and a broken shoulder t b i um and it's not a severe t b i but a you know A bad enough head injury that, you know, still affects me to this day a little bit.
0: You think? (laughs) I mean, half those things, I don't know about y'all, but half those things I didn't even know we had in our body. Um, So, you go right into recovery. Um, But yet, I'm going to fast forward and then we're going to go back and fill this in. Inside of six months, if my research is correct, you were walking back into the hangar on active duty.
1: I did walk. I, di- I was on active duty. It was March. I think it was March 1st. I walked in back into the back into the hangar. So it was November, December, January, March. Within five or six months, I walked back into the hangar. Um,
0: so physically, you physically, back I in. can move.
1: Yeah, physically, I can move. A lot of my injuries were, you know, osteo and you know, ortho and all that stuff. So, which I was able to recover from.
0: But mentally and emotionally,
1: I walked out the door as soon as I walked back in the door. <laughs> so, you know, when I walked through the door, all I saw was a burning helicopter. And, you know, it was a burning helicopter. And I think the day I went back, one of the wives was there. I'm not sure. I think, uh, I think the wife was there. I can't remember if she was there. But I know she was at the squadron one of the days that I had shown up. Um, but I just couldn't see a regular helicopter. You know, I couldn't. I was just seeing a mangled, mangled mess.
0: And was it, was it literally the same thing that you saw when you came to and looked over? Is that what you kept I seeing? I didn't
1: see anything when I looked over. Uh, like at nighttime, mm-hmm. you're talking about down in, at the crash site? Yes. Uh, no, it was dark. Um, and actually, when I was sitting on the aux bag, which is the auxiliary fuel bag, mm-hmm. and so that thing had exploded, and I had fuel all in my face, so I, I had never opened my eyes for... I don't think I opened my eyes until I got to Germany, maybe, or Bethesda, or, yeah, Germany. I was in, I don't remember Bastion. I don't remember staying in Bastion. Mm-hmm. I just remember talking, they called my wife when I was in Germany, and I think I told her I was sorry, and then that was it. And then
0: I really? Went, you yeah. told her you were sorry? <laughs> yeah,
1: I told her I was sorry. Well, before I left on this deployment, I told her, I was like, look, I know this is the third one, but I just don't have a good feeling about this deployment. I told—I swear to God—I told her the day you know we we left on Mother's Day, May 11th, 2009, and I told her probably May 10th or 9th. And I was like, I just don't have a good feeling about this deployment. Wow. Yeah.
0: So. So, you know, one of the things that 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 I want you to touch on because I think it's it's extremely important that that all of us as members of society understand it. You know, you mentioned, you know, the physical ailments. You've obviously healed, you know, I, I don't want to say without problem, right. but you're, you're functioning. Um, you know, mentally and emotionally, you're, you're, you're pretty solid. Right. Um, but to get to that point, you had to overcome, like you said, a little bit of, of TBI, right. but a lot of survivor's guilt.
1: Correct, yeah.
0: Walk us through, the, the survivor's guilt, okay. because I know it's a real deal. Right.
1: Yeah, so in my crash, uh, I was only one or two survivors. Um, there was two on the Cobra, and there was four on my helicopter. Uh, my crew chief that I had flown with, Corporal Gregory Fleury, uh, he was killed that night, and uh, Captain Jones was killed that night. Captain Smith and myself were the only two survivors. Um, the other two pilots were Captain Van de Giesen and Captain Mitchell. Um, and so I wore that on my, uh, on my shoulder, my heart, my just everything on why, I struggled a lot on, like, why I survived. Why am I the only one here? Now, there was another, Captain Van de Giesen had, had kids. So I was the only one with kids other than Captain Van de Giesen. We were the only two that were married. Um, he had a kid that was actually born today, 15 days after the crash. He was set to come home and never got to meet him. So he, uh... Colin's birthday is today, he turns 12. Um, But I suffered a lot with why I was spared and stuff like that. So September 11th, 2000 and I think it was 11 or 12, I tried to commit suicide. Um, I was on copious amounts of pain medications. I was in copious amounts of pain and tried to take my life that night. Um, But for another reason, (laughs) I'm still here, and uh I think that's opened my eyes a lot on you know different ways you know why I'm here. obviously, there's a reason I'm here, and it's to spread you know my story you know it's the only way I can really think about it. It's got to be you know just like I've said all the time is if I can rise from the depths of hell and as a champion, then anybody can do it so.
0: So, I mean, I'll just say, I mean, thank God you're still here. Thank you. Um, thank God for, you know, for your wife, for your children. Um, but like you said, to be able to to share this story. And that, that was one of the reasons that, you know, that I thought this was um, a very pertinent story. A lot of veterans um, that are walking around out there are survivors of similar type situations. Um, for those of you who can see it, I've got a, a ring on my right index finger. This ring represents the 22 members of the military who take their own life every day because of things like what Andrew is talking about. And so it can be any number of different reasons. And so Andrew, I wanna, I wanna kind of go into that a little bit more because as members of society, our job should be just to embrace and to love and, and really just you know put our arms around somebody and tell them we're here for you, we're here with you. Right. It's not to fix it okay we can't fix it right but when you talked about the whole idea of suicide was it and you were in pain were you in physical pain was it because your mind wasn't right because you were on drugs is it because you had nowhere else to turn and i'm asking all this and i'm going to give you a, a second to think about it i used to think that 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 um suicide I just, I, I'm not wired that way. I don't even think about it. It doesn't, and so I was very, very naive to it. And that is, I, I, have, I, have, I used to be very embarrassed when I first realized just how real it is and how naive I was, how stupid I was.
1: I think I was, I think uh, I would be standing right next to you if you talked about being naive. I, before I got to where I was, I was like, how can somebody be so selfish to take your own life? I mean, you have so much going for you, but how can you be so selfish? But I was like, I've never been to where they are. I haven't been in that position. I haven't felt the need of no help of, you know, my wife was there, but my wife was ready to, you know, this is three years after she's been dealing with, you know, from day one, you know, whether it's to clean my feet, wipe my butt, change my diaper, I didn't wear a diaper, but change my clothes, you know, whatever it was, You know, she's been there from day one, but she's only seen me get worse. Yeah, physically better, mentally worse, right? So the the medications, it changed me. It just destroyed me. It made me me stay in the home, not, you know, aggressive. I was never physical with anybody, but, you know, it just changed everything. changes the way your brain works, the pain medication it does. It makes you think you're in pain when you're really not in pain. I haven't taken a pain medication in over six years almost. So, um, you know, I just, you got to be able to battle, you got to be able to be one with yourself. You know what I mean? You got to be able to love yourself before you can love anybody
0: else, and. So, so when you take, I mean, you, you tried to overdose on pain medication. Correct. It didn't work. What, do you recall the, the, uh, what really triggered your mind to go, wait a minute, this ain't the answer. And, but this isn't the path.
1: Well, I was, so, with taking those pain medications, I ended up in a hospital. You know, I was on so many, like, I took so many pain medications and different medicines that I was basically in a coma for, like, two or three days. I was a zombie. I woke up, and then it just started, I went back into a psychiatric hospital. I've been into two or three psychiatric hospitals, Um, but that was the last one that I've been into. Um, It's just... um, I lost my train of
0: thought well uh, that's fine because I want to ask questions <laughs> so when you when you talk about a psychiatric hospital I mean what a lot of people think about obviously what comes to mind is a straitjacket and right. you know you're gonna you're a danger to your n- right. you know, not and just and it's others not, but yourself it's,
1: it's people that are it's when I got in there I'm like this is not who I am I mean this is people with heroin addictions with you know crack addictions with s- severe bipolar addiction or d- diseases and I'm just like, I am not in this, le- I'm not on this level, Andrew. Mm-hmm. I was like, you are not on this level. So I think at that point, when I'm like, I need to get out of here with that.
0: So you had a, basically yeah. you had a conversation, like you are not, that was you your are awakening. Not in this,
1: yeah, so this is not where you are, this is not where you need to be. Mother didn't raise you like that, you know, so.
0: So, was it at this point when you said, man, I got to find something else to occupy me? And is, is, is that where golf comes in?
1: Well, that's where my mother had introduced, she said, hey, President Bush holds a warrior open for uh, wounded individuals
0: here mm-hmm. in Dallas.
1: know, She said, maybe you should apply one year. And so in 2012, I applied for the 2013 one and, and got accepted.
0: And when was the last time you had played golf before um, that? Or had you been playing? I on had and off? played
1: in physical therapy uh, okay. a little bit during before I had gotten out of the military. But you know, when I moved back home, I I hadn't played at all. Okay. So. Um, so
0: you apply for the for the opportunity.
1: Got it. Got accepted into for the 2013 one, and then um, I kept getting accepted just for getting placed because I placed so high in the top five.
0: And well, how, okay. So if you hadn't played in a long time, you're dealing with all these you know, physical injuries, you're, you're coming off of the, the, the mental challenges of, right. of the, the drugs. How in the world did you get ready for this? Or did you?
1: Well, you know, I turned my life, instead of sitting around the house, you know, I got off the pain medications and then I just started going to the golf course, right? So instead of focusing my mind on my pain and, you know, all this, I would go focus my mind on a, on a little white golf ball and trying to get it inside of a hole. Um, for five, six, seven, eight hours a day. So you found that to be very therapeutic.
0: Very, very therapeutic. So my boss is here and I just want him to know that, you know.
1: <laughs> <laughs> this is very, very therapeutic, yep.
0: Okay. <laughs> okay, so, so you find yourself uh, in, in the, you know, President Bush's Warriors Open. And tell me about that experience because, you know. Yeah, that- I
1: mean, you get to meet a president and then you're playing golf in front of him. Uh, good thing I didn't top the first tee. I may have hit a groove high, but I didn't top it. Um, <laughs> um, and, you know, it's just, I think it's the fact of meeting more warriors that are the same as you, that, are, that have been blown up, that have lost limbs, that have dealt with pain medications. And uh, I think seeing and getting thrown back into another brotherhood and, you know, camaraderie type deal, um, building a new network, which has really helped me out quite a bit.
0: So did, did it kind of return a sense of purpose? Uh, a sense of of camaraderie
1: yeah i think once i told my story you know once i told my story for the first time you know and and for me be able to open up and tell my story and mm-hmm. and you know it just a lot of times not a, t- a dry eye in, in a room whenever you're telling those stories which you know it makes you feel better that you know you're moving people and people are actually hearing you and listening and you know i've had plenty of people come up and say hey thanks for that and you know we're you saved me. Right. I, you know, I watched this here. I watched some video way back when, and it saved me. And so it it it's worth it. You know.
0: Yeah. It it's a. Um, I mean, when I think back, the the part about your story that sticks out the most to me before we go back to the golf a little bit, is is Captain Van de son being born 15 days after he was killed in action. Right. And I think the reason that sticks out to me so much is because. You know, we, we think about things like, I mean, first of all, we don't even think about a lot of these things. Um, unfortunately, in, in a time of war, um, it happens all too often. All too often. And so, you probably have developed kind of a bond with that family, I would assume.
1: Yeah, I think, you know, I've, uh, I've actually, they live up in, in Massachusetts. So, I've become a second team Boston guy. And, um, you know, we, it was the hardest point is is trying to for me for me is to speak how am I going to be represented and how am I going to be seen through these four families that have lost a loved one and I was spared in that same crash you know so um, I think from the beginning we were I was accepted from them you know and as I was accepted, it just became you know more and more and raising money for the funds that they do and raising money for you know the Different organizations that they work with and it's just been you know healing for me and probably mm-hmm. them as well
0: so kind of shifting back to, to your golf um, I mean you were on the Golf Channel not I just was. not just like on the Golf Channel as a mention. you were one of the contestants
1: correct yeah they had a uh, 2018 they came out with a uh, show called the shot makers uh, that was filmed at Las Vegas in top golf, and uh, I was part of there was two veterans on there, my buddy Chad, and I competed against each other in a two man event so
0: okay, so you guys competed against one another you weren 't competing with all the other ones
1: no we weren't on well we competed against everybody, but we weren't on the same team. We were okay. teamed up it was a one male one female group and but we were on a different team
0: yeah so I, and outside of you and Chad, mm-hmm. everybody else in this event was like they had professional golfer As attached right. to their right. to their name and then you know here comes a you know meathead marine and <laughs> and, and soldier and you know hey we're in it too i mean right. so I, I noticed that all the other candidates were really good looking right but they, what, they, had they, us. they just feel so exactly <laughs> so so tell us about your experience in the shot makers uh, so
1: you know that's another that was helped with the like the nerves and stuff with with playing golf you okay know, being able to hold a club without shaking out of your hand or being able to swing a golf club and, um, under pressure. So, I mean, it was definitely a lot more pressure. I think it was like 30 degrees in Vegas when they shot this. They didn't really think that one through. Yeah. No uh, kidding. (laughs) Well, most of the top golfs
0: have the, have the, the heater up there. Well,
1: they had heaters and everything. Okay. But that wasn't enough. Golf channel would bring out for you. (laughs) Very cold. Very cold. And did you win? We got fourth. We ended up getting
0: fourth place. Fourth place. Yeah. Okay. So. Tell you what, though, I mean, as you know, when you're going up against professional golfers right. and you guys uh, finish fourth, that's pretty impressive. Yep, it was fun. It was definitely a good experience. So, you know, the the whole concept behind the the name of, of our podcast, Lessons from the Front, you know, there's 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 so many stories out there, um, you know, like the one you, you've told us today that. Lessons come out of that, and they're applicable to, to everybody's life on a daily basis. Right. Um, what, what is one lesson that you're going you know, to teach to your kids based on the fact that you fell over 300 feet out of the sky and lived to tell about it? Not just lived to tell about it, but you've actually thrived as a result of it right. because of your approach. I mean,
1: the ones that I tell my kids, you know, because my kids have been affected. uh, They're 17 and 14 now. Um, And my biggest lesson is you have to love yourself. I mean, because my kids go to therapy. And I didn't do that. I didn't tell them to go to therapy. They wanted to go to therapy. Really? Uh, Yes. Yes. It was my daughter approached me one day and she said, hey, I want to go talk to somebody. And I'm like, wow, okay. Okay. But you know what? That's what I've been saying for the last seven years. If you have an issue, go talk to somebody. Talk to, you don't have to talk to a psychologist. Talk to somebody that will listen, and then we'll get you, you know, go the way that, you know, because I don't go to psychologists. I, I don't do the therapist thing. I don't do that. This is my therapy right here, because I'm not judged. By the, <laughs> the psychologist will judge you. <laughs>
0: that, that is possibly true.
1: <laughs> but... Uh, you know so um you got to. i that number one lesson is you got to love yourself um and if if you can pass that down with all of them
0: you know that would be i mean hey if you don't love yourself who will right, right. exactly exactly well I, I appreciate you sharing that and so in a minute i want to open it up to uh, to any questions but you know first I, I want to ask you um one final question from me um you know, Carry the Load, we're about uh, restoring the true meaning of Memorial Day. We're about making sure that, that, that those who have made the ultimate sacrifice for you and for me and for everybody in this room, simply because we're worth it. Um, they carried us to their death. And so it's our job to carry them. Who are you carrying?
1: I carry Captain Kyle Van De Giesen, Captain Seth Mitchell, Captain Jones, Corporal Gregory Fleury, Corporal Tyler Fay and Sergeant Elijah Parker.
0: There's, a, there's an old saying, I think it's a Jewish proverb, that we died two deaths in this life. The first is when the final breath leaves our body, and the second is when someone stops mentioning our name or they mention our name for the last time. And so what I would ask you all to do is keep these individuals in your thoughts and prayers and uh, don't let them be forgotten. So before I turn it over to uh, to questions from the audience, I just want to say Marine, happy birthday and thank happy you very much. Semperfy,
1: sir. Semperfy. Thank you.